You're listening to the Live Well Radio Podcast Show. A wealth of information for a life of inspiration. And here's your host, Brett Coleman. Hey guys, we have a great, great show lined up for you today. You're absolutely going to fall in love with today's guest. Not only has she been named PETA's sexiest vegan over the age of 50, she's also the founder of Main Street Vegan Academy. Please help me welcome Miss Victoria Moran. Victoria, how are you today? Hey, I'm terrific, especially after an intro like that. You know, I could have been a little bit better because the first time, I, I'll be honest with you, the first time I read that PETA's uh, title, I thought it said sexiest virgin over the age of 50. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that would that would be a title. And, and, then I, and then I would have to say, Mr. Melton would have something to say about that, wouldn't he? <laughs> That's great. I love that. Well, you know, that whole sexiest over 50 thing is very interesting because I think it's more of a lifetime achievement award. You know, people vote. And I do have to say when that um, contest was happening in 2016, one of the most gratifying experiences of my life was to read what people wrote and people wrote in who had read my work for many years and others saying, you know, I'm not vegan, you know, but I still think she's great. And I so you know, it's good. It's good. I know there's a lot of, a lot of people think you shouldn't have contests that say sexy, but at least in the PETA contest, there's a male and female winner so I shared that with Dr. Joel Kahn, who's this amazing cardiologist in, in Detroit, who actually puts his health message where it ought to be, in that in addition to treating people, he also has two restaurants with healthy food. So we're all out there doing good. So the Main Street Vegan Academy, let's talk about that for a second. Sure. Well, it was 2012, and it really was kind of a miracle. Um, I had been working on the book, Main Street Vegan. My agent got a wonderful publisher, Tarcher Perigy, and they called and said, we're so happy to have you. We're so happy to have this book, but we hate Main Street. And so I was writing the book thinking of another title, but I knew it was supposed to be called Main Street Vegan because I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, two blocks off Main Street. And I'm very aware that a lot of people think vegans are either weird or they're celebrities or they're ex-hippies or they're old punk rockers or they're somebody that's not just us. And I wanted very much to say, yeah, you can be Main Street. But um, yeah, the publisher just would not hear it. And then I had a, what I consider a miracle. I'm walking up Broadway and there is Michael Moore, the filmmaker. He stopped me on the street. We started talking and um, I told him the book I was working on was supposed to be called Main Street Vegan. He said, that's a perfect title. If your publisher doesn't like it, let me talk to them. So he actually convinced uh, my editor. And when she called a few days later to say that it had gone through and Main Street Vegan was indeed the title of the book, all these other ideas started to pop there needs to be a Main Street Vegan radio show, there needs to be a Main Street Vegan production company, and there needs to be Main Street Vegan Academy training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches. And there has been just that. 
for six years now, and we have 319 graduates in 24 countries. And I have to ask you, when did Oprah come calling? Haha, <laughs> that was before. That was back when um, I was doing more self-help books. My very first book was about veganism. It was actually my college thesis. I had gotten a fellowship for foreign study, and at that time, we're talking about the early 1980s, I um, was trying to be vegan. I wasn't even completely vegan myself, but I wanted to be. And when I got this fellowship, they said, you can study anything you want as long as you leave North America. So I went to the UK to study vegans. And that resulted in my first book, uh, Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. And then I did a couple of others in the kind of vegan genre. And then I thought, okay, you know, I've said all I can say about animals, vegetables, so I branched out and, and did self-help and spirituality and that kind of thing and, and did well with that and got on Oprah uh, the first time in 1999 with a book called Lit From Within. And then I got on again in 2003 um, uh, with a book called Shelter for the Spirit. And it was a fabulous experience. And certainly at that time, saying I was just on Oprah was like saying I have a degree from Harvard. But even now, you know, Oprah carries a lot of magical clout. And I'm so grateful that uh, uh, she opted to give me those two amazing opportunities. Yeah, she really does represent an elevated journey through life. Uh, you also been noted in, in, in the USA Today, the Chicago Tribune, Washington Post, Self Magazine, Elle, Glamour, Allure, and then Oprah's Magazine. Uh, when do you sleep? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of that stuff was from a few years back, and now the entire world has changed, as we all know. And so much of what happens, and so much of what happens, even promotion-wise, is very much do-it-yourself. <laughs> and so there's just so much more marketing and, and so more... Um, self-promotion than there used to be. And some wonderful things have, have happened recently for Main Street Vegan. We got a very nice mention in Forbes.com just last week. And, uh, you know, some other things that have been wonderful. And yet it seems in the old days, something like that happened and that was good enough. It happened. And now it's like, wow, it happened. I need to tell everybody that I've ever heard of on social media and send out a newsletter and do a Facebook live. So, uh, yeah, I, I sleep, but I kind of wish I didn't have to. I can see why, you, you know, let's talk about this creating a charmed life. Is that your baby? Yeah. You know, that book, it, it was just blessed. I, I don't know what else to say about it. I think part of it was that the foreword came from uh, the late Dr. Richard Carlson, who did the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff books. If anybody remembers the 80s, um, that was a huge, huge, um, I, I guess you'd say franchise, although that doesn't sound like a, a, an important enough word. It was a series of books that really spoke to people. They were the best-selling books um, for three years running. Um, I mean, it, it, he just really changed the world with those books. And I think having him write my foreword was a great help. And, you know, sometimes things just line up in life. So with that book, it was a cute little size. I mean, it still exists. People can <laughs> can get it on Amazon. Um, it had a, an, a beach scene on the cover with a lovely beach umbrella. And I think everybody wanted to just 
step into that cover. And uh, 75 little essays uh, about making life work. So yeah, that one just went crazy around the world, 30 foreign languages, and that's one, one of 13. I was going to say that it, it didn't stop there. You, you know, they say when an author sits down to write a book, a lot of times that book is written for their own sake. Uh, you know, I listened to Eckhart Tolle, and I listened to a lot of these well-known authors. A lot of them say that they start the book because it was kind of for their sake, their sake in, in writing the book to help them advance and, and create some self-awareness. Did you find that true with any of your books? Yes, I found that true several times, but I think you have to be really careful with that because a book, even a self-help book, a nonfiction book, it's not therapy. And I find with myself that if I write it too much to help me, then people don't want to read it. <laughs> they want to read the the overcoming. They want to read after you've been through the process and you've figured it out. So, yeah, a couple of times I feel like my books were too personal, a couple of them, and, and too much for me. So, you know, you live and learn. And hopefully as I start on book number 14, I will have learned a lot. You know, Wayne Dyer said that when he wrote Erroneous Zones, he said, you know, that he, he, I think he locked himself in a hotel room for, was it three days? Yeah, three days. Isn't that amazing? He always did that with his books and he wrote them on a manual typewriter, even after everybody else had a laptop. It was amazing. <laughs> Let me, let's talk about this real quick. Then I want to get more into the, uh, the, the Academy. Former President Bill Clinton writes you a thank you letter. What did you send him for that letter? A book. The publisher sent him a copy of Main Street Vegan, and he wrote back quite glowingly, which was a real thrill. And of course, I still have it on his wonderful letterhead signed with his own pen. And it's kind of an interesting story with him because back in about, I would say, 2010 or 11, uh, he after he'd had his first heart attack and he discovered the work of Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, MD, at the Cleveland Clinic, who had done work with late-stage cardiac patients. And even though it wasn't a huge group, they, the results were nothing short of amazing. Yeah, that has to do with a lot with forks over knives, right? Yeah. And so, um, so Bill Clinton changed his diet. He was never completely 100%. I think he, you know, still has some fish every now and then or whatever, but he was pretty darn close. And then he, he got a different doctor. I had read that uh, Hillary gave him a doctor uh, for his birthday or something. And this was a doctor who was not plant-based. So in working with him, it changed. And then he actually had another cardiac event of, of some sort. And it was after that that he went back to being 100% plant-based, as far as I know. You know, this is a problem with celebrities. You never quite know what they're doing. But, you know, to even have them on board partially is a wonderful thing because <laughs> they, they influence a lot of people. They really do. You know, from just listening the last few minutes, you're somebody who exemplifies passion. Uh, somebody who's actually walking the talk. Was it always that way for you, Victoria? 
oh, there's still challenge and hurdles and obstacles. I mean, I've always been a passionate person. I think that's why that book that did so well was called Creating a Charmed Life, because I always believed I had a charmed life, even though it wasn't necessarily a happy life in in the early days. Um, I struggled with overweight and obesity and binge eating, even though my dad was a diet doctor or maybe because my dad was a diet doctor. My mom was in, it wasn't exactly the fitness industry at that point. They ran this, what they called them reducing salons back in the day. And women would go and be jiggled and jostled on machines and supposedly their fat would float off into the stratosphere. It didn't work for me. And so I was never really somebody who fit in. But I think if you get 100 writers in a room, you might find one who feels growing up as if he or she fit in. I think writing is the profession of the outcast. And we kind of speak to those little parts of, of everybody that feel a little bit like, oh my gosh, you know, I oh, that was a stupid thing that I did, or oh goodness, what is somebody going to think? And so, you know, we write to that and serve our purpose in society. So, you know, you mentioned a couple of things I want to touch on. You said you were not happy and you said you were fat. So let me ask you this. Were you unhappy because you were fat or were you fat because you weren't happy? No, I, I think I was, um, I was not chronically unhappy. I was not depressed. I just knew that I had so much to offer and it was not appreciated because as an overweight kid with bad hair and bad skin in Kansas City, Missouri in the 1960s, you know, it's just, it's a tough road, but most people's childhoods are. So um, the, the weight and the food and all of that was a long time coming, the change. I started first researching. I thought it was about food. So I went into my dad's private office. I can remember one day at the age of nine, and I stood up on his desk so that I could get to the very top shelf of his built-in bookshelves because he had this great big book that he had used in medical school called Alimentaris Humanus, Human Nutrition. And I don't know even how I knew that that was what it meant. But anyway, I pulled it down and it was so full of chemistry. I didn't understand one thing about it. But there was a chart that was about foods listed by nutrient density, which they have had uh, in recent years at uh, Whole Foods Market. Um, Dr. Joel Furman came up with something that he calls the, the Andy chart. And it's just like the chart in my dad's ancient medical school book because all of the super, super healthiest foods per calorie were things that when I was nine years old, I'd never heard of. So they were things like collard greens. I didn't know what that was or kale or arugula, you know, all this was just foreign to me. So I filed that away. I still didn't know that people actually ate it. I think it also had on their dandelion greens. And I remember thinking you'd have to be really desperate to go out in the yard and pick those. And so the, the adventure continued. Uh, and I did start writing for health store publications. And I interviewed a lot of the people who were very well known back in the day and thought maybe I could catch from them the ability to eat 
moderately and not either be binging or dieting. It didn't work. So what finally worked for me was recovery in Overeaters Anonymous. And once I woke up and knew that as long as I did that 12-step program a day at a time, I could be free. And I also knew that I could be vegan, which I had wanted to do for a long time, but it's pretty hard to go to the 7-Eleven in the middle of the night looking for your stash and reading the labels and finding that pretty much all the junk food has some whey or some egg albumin or something in it that isn't vegan. So those two things um, coincided for me in 1983, and I've lost all the weight, over 60 pounds, just over 60 pounds. Um, and it's been gone since Reagan was president. What was it that finally got you into the therapy program, the, the, the steps to take the necessary action to lose it, to make a difference? Because you can't, you can't run the same formula and expect different results. We all know that. And it's not the results that we ought to be frustrated with. We ought to take a look at the mindset we're using that's producing those results. So what changed for you, Victoria? Well, I think a lot has to do with timing. And when the desire and the resources coincide at the right time, I think that's when change happens for people. In my case, I already knew about OA. I had been in and out of meetings, but I had given birth to my daughter and I really wanted to be the best person that I could be, the best mom that I could be. So I, I went back to OA with a real surrendered attitude because I've crossed over, you know, when I talk about and teach about um, weight issues, emotional eating, food addiction, I'm very clear that there are three categories and there can be, you know, crossover, but a lot of people who deal with weight issues, it's about food. It's about food choices, the kinds of foods that a lot of people are offered and, and have the chance to eat in our society are really designed to make people heavy. They're designed to make people eat more, buy more, lots of salt and fat and sugar pumped into the stuff to um, make it create cravings and that. And when those people learn about food, when they just learn how to change what they're eating, miracles can happen. And you throw some exercise in there and, and it's amazing. Emotional eating is also not that difficult to deal with because that's still a habit pattern. And with the right kind of support and, and resources and tools and good food, um, that's not too hard, but oh my goodness, when you get into that third category of compulsive eating or food addiction, it's like a rubber band that you've stretched until it breaks. And how are you going to put that thing back together? And for years I thought, well, I can put it back together. I don't know why I thought I could, but I guess omnipotent me, I can put it back together, but I couldn't. And I think when I finally realized that, which for people who are familiar with the 12-step programs is step one, um, then the rest fell into place. It wasn't easy all the time, but it became easy over time. And if anybody, even one of your listeners struggles with binge eating, just know there is light at the end of that tunnel 
And if I could do it, I was a low bottom binge eater. You can do it. So you're inspirational speaker. You're a corporate spokesperson, certified holistic health counselor, graduate of the TC Colin Campbell Foundation E. Cornell program in plant-based nutrition. Explain that. What is that? Oh, that's an online course started by Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who is famous for the China study, the largest study in human nutrition ever conducted. The uh, New York Times called it the Grand Prix of Epidemiology. And the results that they found were not at all what they were looking for and caused him to change the way that he looked at nutrition, despite having already been at that time um, a professor of nutritional biochemistry for 30 years. So um, at his uh, professional alma mater, uh, Cornell, uh, yeah, they put together a, a program that, that uh, anybody can take and, uh, and learn about plant-based nutrition, food policy, and uh, how to be a whole lot healthier. Let's fast forward for a second. You're 95. You're sitting in the rocking chair. And there's three major accomplishments that you'll be satisfied you, you achieved. What are the three things on that list? Wow, what a great question. Well, the first, of course, is my daughter. And, and she is amazing. She's a lifelong vegan. She Adair, yes. Uh, she's an aerial performer and a stunt performer. And she also has a um, wildlife rehabilitation nonprofit here in New York City, Urban Utopia, where they save the wild mammals um, that have been injured and, and um, orphaned. So I'm very, very proud of her. And I think it was Jackie Kennedy that said, if you don't do right by your kids, none of your other accomplishments matter. So, so she would be first. The next thing I think would have to be the books. And I don't know at 95 if there are going to be 15 or 17 or eight. I don't know. I don't know how many more books are in me. And we are in a new world. This is not the era of the book. But I pray that publishing will outlive me and I will get to keep writing. And I just feel that that really is a legacy that can live on after me. So I'm very, very grateful. And I think the third thing will be great gratitude that I did discover the vegan lifestyle when I did. Finally made it in my early 30s, but I was, you know, in and out and trying it quite a bit before that. So the bulk of my life has been an attempt to live with compassion and uh, to extend the compassion that I think we just feel naturally towards other humans and, and certain animals, cats, dogs, <laughs> but horses, to really spread that out to encompass all that has life. And that's been a great blessing and a great gift. I wouldn't trade it for just about anything. That's awesome. You, you, you know, sitting here listening to you, you have an electric personality. You have a beautiful soul. You're, you're a person who exudes uh, purpose. Nobody can listen to this podcast and not hear the purpose you have. You smile when you speak. You, you have a lot going on for you. I hope you get out of bed every morning and say thank you for allowing me to be Victoria Moran because it is, it's got to be a great life. It really does. 
you have a lot of fun being you, don't you? I do. <laughs> yeah. And it's so important, I think, especially now being older. Now I'm 68 years old and things do change and it is different. And I used to wonder, like, why are old people so funny? <laughs> it's like, ooh, now I know. Because it's a whole new phase. And the only way that I know to navigate it is with incredible, vibrant, good health, really good food, really hard exercise, and an incredible attitude of engagement and purpose. And there's so many things to be purposeful about. Any good cause is as good as any other good cause. And mine happens to be veganism. It happens to be animal liberation. And I see that changing and growing around me every single day. I don't know that I'll see it go as far as I hope it will eventually go, but I am seeing change in that way. And I think about anybody who's working for anything that makes this world better. Just every time there's a success, every time there's a victory, whether it's, it's personal or, or community or legislative or whenever you can say, look, look what just happened. And I was a teeny tiny part of that. It really makes going forward in life just a lot cooler. And you're very cool. Do you think that's what sets you apart from the people who are allowing their circumstances to hold them back? You, you know, you, you, you find purpose in a variety of different areas, not just monetary, not just money, not just a job, but you seem you have a purpose for life in itself. And there's many people who are being held back by their circumstances. You're definitely not one of them. And I'm just wondering, do you think that appreciation for what you have, marinating gratitude and being obsessed with gratitude helps you propel and excel and elevate your journey through life, whereas other people are being held back by their circumstances. Right. Well, I do when I remember it. You know, I also don't want to give the impression that every single day I'm on. You know, I, I love media. I love speaking. I love communicating. And so in these kinds of settings, this is when I'm at my best. But if it's March and cold and dark and seven o'clock and there's an event on my calendar and I don't want to go because it's cold and it's dark. And here in New York City, of course, you don't just get in your car in your nice warm garage. You know, you have to go out and fight the rain and the snow and the puddles and whatever. You know, there are times I don't go and I'm not proud of that. I just want to be really clear that I think I have an amazing life and I screw up quite a bit. So the one thing that tells me is an amazing life doesn't mean you have to be anywhere in the ballpark of perfect. You just have to get up and try again the next time. Well, perfect's an illusion. You know, if you look at perfection, it's not a good thing. You know, it's a dysfunctional personality. Perfection is, is never attainable. It's like the, the greyhounds at the track trying to catch that mechanical rabbit. They're never going to catch it, but they don't know that. So what's striving for perfection is actually self-defeating behavior. By the way, let me say this to you, and I'm saying this on air to thousands of listeners. Anytime you want an invite, you need a place to stay, you want to change your venue to Arizona, you have a place to stay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, you know, there are times that that's appealing. Get out of that cold, winter, wintry month. Yeah, the, the winter thing, that's really something. And it is interesting to me how many very successful people and how many really creative people manage to do it in cold climates. And I think it's because one of the benefits of a cold climate is it forces you to go within. 
There are certainly many benefits of warm climates, but I think if you live in a place that has a lot of winter, you've got to really create your own sunshine. And if you're able to do that, it can do a lot to improve your life as a whole. Yeah, increase your uh, intake of vitamin D and get an inside sun lamp because they actually, there's, a, there's a, actually a disease, SAD, SAD, seasonal affective disorder that affects a lot of people who don't get sunshine. And that's why I got the heck out of Dodge years ago because Michigan is a beautiful place for me to um, experience summertime, but in the wintertime, you can have it. It goes for months, gray, dreary, drizzly. But here we get maybe 300 days of sunshine in Arizona, just north of Phoenix. It's beautiful, gorgeous. So let me say this again. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate that. Our listeners are going to love you. Before we let you go, I have to ask you three things that you would advise somebody who's listening to this podcast right now. You're inspiring them to do what three things, not tomorrow, not next week. Let's not make it a New Year's resolution, but what can they do? today after hearing this podcast, three things that helped them take small baby steps in a better direction. Inch by inch is a cinch, yard by yard is kind of hard. What three baby steps can they take today? Well, I would suggest that before the day is over today, you eat something really pretty, something green or purple, not M&Ms, but something that grew up out of the ground, really, really pretty because that's where all the phytochemicals and the antioxidants live. When I was in a really, really down time in my life, I was a young widow. I decided I should move with my daughter to the country because maybe life would be simpler there. It wasn't. But the first night I went grocery shopping there, the woman at the store looked at what I had purchased and she said, I've had this job nearly 15 years and I've never seen such pretty groceries. So get pretty groceries, eat some pretty food. I think it'll uh, be a great pickup and the more of it you eat, the more you'll want. Then the next thing I would say is to just practice for fun living one day at a time. And that's an old 12-step thing, but it really works for anybody. But certainly we need to plan for the future and we need to make a note, yeah, pick up the dry cleaning on Thursday. But if you can really focus on living this day to the fullest, because it is really the only one that, that we've got. And then finally, the third thing is I would just think about what can I do in my life to do the most good and the least harm? It's such a wonderful little um, compass. Because there are so many different ways of looking at life and morality and what we should do and what we shouldn't do. But we all have a moral compass in ourselves. And if we just walk around with this kind of little balance, how can I do the most good and how can I do the least harm? And of course, we're going to screw up all the time, daily, often. And it, it's, it's very humbling to think, oh my gosh, like me, you know, I've written all these self-help books and I still do these things. And it's like, oh my God, how could I have done that? How could I have said that? But you know what? You pick yourself up and you keep on going. And those days get strung together like a string of pearls until you realize that you have created a pretty magnificent life. That's beautiful. You don't stay there. You know, you recognize it, you're aware of it and you move on. Beautifully put. Listen, Oprah's calling me. I got to go. 
Clint's been texting me. I got to take this phone call. <laughs> well, thank you so very much. And if you're, um, if your readers want to find me, I am Main Street Vegan all over social media, and the website is MainStreetVegan.net. Yes, and we'll be sending them the link in our in this podcast and our monthly newsletter. They'll get all that information, and we appreciate your time, and we'll look forward to having you back. Any chance you get, we'll appreciate it. Thanks so much. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.